Well, I am thrilled to be here today after a summer break and to have the chance to begin with you what will be a multi-month adventure for us, a journey through the magnificent biblical book of Exodus together. It is going to be a journey in which God speaks to us and, and imparts to us more of who he is, uh, gives us a greater awareness of the world around us and the opportunities before us and the challenges we face as well. And so I hope and pray that you will find yourself lifted up in all of the best ways as we go on this journey together. I want to just say a few things by way of introduction to the series before we jump into the book together. And the first thing I want to say is that Exodus is a really big book. Uh, it is chock full of detail and stories. And we would normally, when we look at a passage of Scripture, uh, try and take it as much as we could, verse by verse. It's going to be a challenge because we're going to be covering whole swaths of the story uh, each and every week. And for that reason, I want to invite you to read along in the Scriptures with us. Uh, bring your Bible when you come to worship. Make use of the Bible that you have in front of you. Use the one you may have on your phone. And if possible, read the text in advance so that you have the whole sweep of the Scripture in your mind as we begin to study it together. We'll be putting on the wild page of our website a listing of each of the themes we're exploring in the Scripture verses that will make it easy for you to find it if you go to our website or use the Christ Church uh, Connect app. Secondly, we are providing study guides for this series, uh, things that you can use for personal reflection and for conversation with other people. We are calling these study guides wild cards. Uh, following the title of the series, uh, we are going to be providing them every single week, and you can get them on your way out here today, and I hope you will find these resources uh, deepen your encounter with God's Word and its application in your personal life. Finally, I just want to say a word about why understanding the book of Exodus is wildly important, why it so deeply matters, and therefore why I hope you will not miss an episode of this series as we go on the journey together. To that end, I also want to thank my good friend, Mike Woodruff, another pastor up in Lake Forest, for some of his helpful uh, insights on this subject. Understanding this book matters, first of all, because the story of Exodus is our story. And I invite you to think about that for just a moment with me. I, I, I think about the tendency all of us have, maybe it's more me than you, to try and build a peaceful, predictable, pleasurable, perfectly patterned life for ourselves, like all of the advertisers suggest should be possible if we just buy their stuff or work harder at it ourselves. I think of that, that instinct to try and build that kind of perfectly ordered life. How is that project going for you? I will confess that I find my life so often out of sorts with that idealized version of what life should be about. My own life has been pretty nonlinear. It's been highly unpredictable. It's often been 
confounding. In fact, I uh, recorded this past week an episode of the Deeper Still podcast with Sue Ann Camfield and reflected on some of the circumstances that I'm dealing with right now in my life that are just testing me in all kinds of significant ways. My life's been full of deep disappointments and agonizing suspense seasons and sudden surprises that have often been quite delightful. It's been crammed with conflicts and choices and challenges. It has been a, it's been wrecked at moments and then redeemed in another moment. And then surprisingly, I see the, the interface between the wreckage and the redemption. They've been related somehow. My life has been broken. It's been blessed. And all in ways that I would never have been able to imagine or to design for myself. Maybe you can relate to some of that yourself. Despite all of our attempts to domesticate it, direct it, tame it, life itself, human life, is wild. It's truly wild. The book of Exodus is important because it trains us for this reality. It tells us that that this is the nature of the journey that all of us are on. It teaches us to expect the unexpected. It instructs us not to give up when things are bad. It tells us to keep trusting God when the twists and the turns of our life uh, are, are difficult or when we reach an apparent dead end. The stories of Exodus read a little bit like Bear Gryllis meets Lara Croft meets Indiana Jones meets River Monsters meets Naked and Afraid. It's a wild story, the story of Exodus, because our lives are also wild. But Exodus is our story in another sense, too. It doesn't just mirror our individual pilgrimage through life. Exodus is also the storyline from which emerged so many of the communal visions and values that undercurred life today that have defined what we call Western civilization, and now increasingly many other civilizations. When secular people, for example, speak of having had a, uh, a burning bush experience or a, a mountaintop moment, they are drawing from the pages of Exodus, the stories of Exodus, consciously or unconsciously. When African slaves or sex-trafficked persons have dreamed of escaping bondage, they have been echoing the refrain of Exodus. When grateful people speak of receiving a surprising gift as if it's manna from heaven, or, or exhausted people speak of reaching the, the promised land of retirement, it's from the stories of this book that they are drawing. The moral convictions that undergird our life, the conviction that we should not murder or steal or commit adultery or bear false witness or covet or dishonor our parents did not just arise spontaneously. These convictions were not always present in human life. They arose through the pages of Exodus. And the story of the God of Exodus. And I think that's pretty wild. How much of life, as we share it together, is spoken of, is 
framed in terms of the great stories of Exodus. This book is also worth our study, I think, because Exodus is something of an endurance guide for the hard passages of life. I know I, I think of myself as a, as a pretty resilient person. Um, I wake up most mornings uh, feeling reasonably optimistic about the day. I'm one of those half full versus uh, cup half empty people. I tend to get back up and into the game when I have been knocked down. But when I think of a group of people who eat my lunch when it comes to personal resilience and positive contribution over a really long period of time under very difficult circumstances, I think of the Jewish people. I think of the, of the Hebrews and their story. My friend Mike points out that though the Jewish people represent only 0.2% of the world's population, in almost every field, if you think about it, from science and medicine to arts and economics, the Jewish people punch above their weight. <laughs> they have an outsized level of contribution and influence, despite being such a small part of the planet's population. On a planet where many companies don't make it 30 years, where, where, where most nations don't survive more than 200 years, the Jews have endured as a cohesive, contributing people despite many brutal attempts to wipe them completely out. Over 3,000 years. How has this been? Why is this so? What's been their secret? Many scholars point to this book, Exodus, as one of the significant reasons for that endurance. As an identity-shaping, character-defining, culture-creating document, the vision and the values of Exodus have been for the Jews the spiritual story that has grounded them and given them guidance through almost unimaginably difficult persecutions, exiles, and even holocausts. So if you are looking personally for a resource to help strengthen your resilience, your endurance, your ability to hang on, to keep going, to look for the better, to find the best through the bleak wilderness periods that come to all of us at some point. If you're looking for help, this book is going to be timely and a real gift to you. So I hope you look forward to this journey together. Wheaton College President Phil Riken. Uh, calls Exodus an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. It belongs with Game of Thrones. It belongs with some of the other epic tales, the Lord of the Rings. It's an epic tale, he says, of fire, sand, wind, and water. And it is not surprising that Hollywood has made many, many movies 
from its pages. And when it hasn't literally been following the story, it's borrowed from the story of Exodus in so many of its artistic expressions. But more importantly than being an epic story, Exodus is an epic introduction to the one behind every story. It's an epic introduction to the magnificent heart and the awesome power and the mysterious providence of the very great God. As we go on this journey, Exodus is going to introduce us or perhaps reintroduce us to the amazing God who is actually at work right now in our lives also. (coughs) And if you have become, in this season of your life, a little bit unclear about his presence, if you become a little bit doubtful of his capacity to transform what's not working so well in you or for you, if you've become a little bit uncertain about the creative methods that God might be using right now to advance his purpose in your life, then studying this book might just be one of the most important things you could do. Because you will meet him in a fresh way as we go on this journey. There is a fourth reason to study Exodus that I will touch on at the end today. But let me just invite you to jump into the story with me. And here then I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. I will say that Exodus is a sequel. It's the sequel to Genesis. It's particularly the sequel to the end of Genesis, which is the amazing story of Joseph, the Jewish slave who became chief of staff to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the greatest superpower of the second millennia BC. As we covered here in a series entitled Joe some years ago, uh, God shaped a somewhat spoiled and selfish kid named Joseph into a virtuous and valiant leader who not only managed to rescue his 11 siblings and and their families, but millions, literally millions of Egyptians as well from the consequences of a massive famine that was then sweeping across the entire Middle East. This is how the children of the famous uh, patriarch of Genesis, Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, we've heard that word before, This is how they came to leave the land of Canaan or Palestine in the north and come down and live in Egypt, which is the setting of Exodus' start. The story continues in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 6 as follows. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now exactly how the children of Israel stopped being viewed as celebrities and started being viewed as like cicadas 
is an interesting question, but this is the transition that has gone on. There was a time when the Hebrew people are regarded as celebrities. They're, they're the extended family of Joseph, the great hero that saved Egypt and the surrounding area from famine. But now, over time, they come to be viewed much less charitably. And the next verses tell us how this happened. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. I think this is a, a good reminder as an aside that, that most of us only get to surf for so long on the contributions of the generation before us. We only get to, to, to benefit from the good reputation and the good deeds of those who went before us for so long before we have to once again establish our identity, our credibility in a, in a personal way. Come, said the new king, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies. So they put slave masters over the Hebrews to oppress them, the text says. They oppressed them with forced labor and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Once upon a time, the, the Jewish people were the managers of the resources of the empire. Now they're the ones that are the slave labor building the next wave of that empire. Yet the Bible says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. I'm struck that this is a familiar uh, phenomenon throughout history, that the, that the greatest threat to God's people is not really persecution, it's comfort. The greatest threat to, to God's people is they will become so comfortable Things will be going so well. They will lose their dependence upon God. They will lose their sense of identity, their commitment to the things of God. When the church or God's people have been oppressed in places like first century Rome or in the last decades of the Soviet Union, this very pressure somehow had this way of galvanizing God's people. It drove them together. It made them examine their core commitments and values. It forged fresh resolve and then fruitfulness. An old mission partner of ours named David Wong, who's spoken right here from this place in the past, once told me that, that when he ministers among the churches of China, which as you may know, have grown profoundly despite tremendous persecution and oppression, that when he prayed for the North American church, he says, Lord, send my friends some persecution. Put some pressure on them that forces them to choose which kingdom they are really about. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites 
and worked them ruthlessly because the more they put pressure on them, the more they grew and expanded and strengthened. They made their lives bitter, says the text, with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And then just to underline the weight of the suffering that's being put on God's people, Exodus repeats, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Have you ever been through one of those seasons in your life where you felt worked by life ruthlessly? And you thought to yourself, this is bad. This is so bad, it can't get worse. And then it got worse. It got even worse. Exodus is a template for that moment. Exodus is is a picture of people living in that moment. If you go on and you read the next verses, you, you hear how it begins to get even worse. You learn how Egypt's pharaoh decides that the secret to dealing with this problem now is genocide. And, and, and he begins quite um, covertly at first. He orders uh, the Hebrew midwives uh, and two women in particular named Shifra and Pua to start executing some of the Jewish kids. If the baby born turns out to be male, kill them, he instructs them. And these two women exercise as far as I know, the first recorded act of principled civil disobedience in the face of this edict. They, they spare the kids that they've been told to kill, and God blesses them for their courage and their devotion to his law above all earthly laws and authorities, and he expands their families, the text tells us. But in... But in In the close of chapter 1, circumstances continue to move in that worser way. We're told that then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. He's not just talking to the midwives now or just the Jewish midwives. He's talking to everybody in the land. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. I want to pause for a moment here and make an observation that I hope you are also noting. The Bible is not mainly a book about some wispy heaven. The Bible is not mainly some book about a disembodied spirituality. It is not a simple pathway to health, wealth, and prosperity that allows us to bypass challenges and suffering. If you've been following this story so far, then you're getting reminded that the Bible is a manual for living in a world of sin and evil and struggles and great suffering. It's a world where you're past contributions get very quickly forgotten, like Joseph's. 
It's, it's a world where you get pressure to, to be, you're pressured to work ruthlessly hard. I remember reading back years ago when they said all these technological advances were going to make our life so easy that there'd be just such a massive leisure industry to help us spend all of the available time, all of the margin that we would have. And yet we live in a world where today, more than ever, people are working ruthlessly hard. We live in a world where insecure people are threatened by your strength. They're threatened by your convictions as they were threatened in Egypt by the Jewish peoples. It's a world where horrible things happen, even to innocent kids, and where it is only natural if you've got a heartbeat to cry out for a savior. Exodus chapter two introduces us to a figure who will be a savior of sorts. The chapter begins, and I quote, now a man of the tribe of Levi, one of the 11 uh, or the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the brother of Joseph. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, we later learn named Jochebed, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. But when she could hide him no longer, why was she needing to hide him? Because all the boys were being thrown into the Nile. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. And papyrus is, is a paper that's uh, woven from reeds. Uh, she had a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Why? To waterproof it. And then she placed the child in it and she put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, the baby's sister, we later learn her name, Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, I, I just want to note once again one of these kind of throwaway details in the story that we shouldn't throw away. Please note the stunningly significant, compellingly courageous, history-altering role that God gives to women in this story, in the story of his saving work. If you are a woman, or even if you're a guy, and you have ever been made to feel or told to feel that the Bible is essentially God's plan that's mainly about and for and through men than Exodus and a lot of other scriptures will urge you to think more broadly. It's hard to miss the message actually here in the start of Exodus that the main redemptive actors in the story at the start are Shipra 
and Puah, Jochebed and Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter and her female attendants. It's almost like we're really being urged <laughs> to take women very, very seriously. We're getting tight on time, however, so I'm going to summarize what happens next and urge you to read the rest of chapter 2 for yourself. The baby in the basket, who will be uh, given the name Moses, which uh, comes from the Hebrew word from to draw up out of the water, is somebody who you've probably heard of. I think all of us know the name of Moses, Moisha in the Hebrew. Though born a Jewish slave, he will be raised as the son of Pharaoh, who, by the way, in Egyptian belief, was regarded as a god. He will be regarded as a son of God in this story. Aware of his secret dual identity, that he's both very much a peasant and somehow now a prince, uh, Moses develops a, a somewhat conflicted sense of his calling and identity and purpose. But, but what arises up in him as he grows older is an increasing sense of compassion for the Hebrew people and, and passion for, for justice on behalf of those Hebrew people. One day, the text says, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and looking this way and that way and seeing no one, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now the moral verdict on that particular act is complicated and a subject for another day. Nonetheless, we note here that Pharaoh found out about it. This is the nature, I guess, of sin as we often think, I can get away with it. And very often, somebody sees, or the truth comes out. And when Pharaoh found, found out about this murder, uh, it, it unmasks finally for him the reality of who Moses is, that he's actually a Hebrew slave. Even if Pharaoh had heard whispers of this, or even if he knew boldly about it, he had never seen his son act like a Hebrew, choose Hebrews and the Jewish people over Egypt. And so Pharaoh sets out now to kill Moses. Fearing for his own life, Moses flees the country. He heads east across the Arabian desert to the land of Midian out in the wilderness there. And at some point, he finds himself desperately thirsty, as any of us would who've traveled into harsh, hot places. He gets himself to a well, and as he's now resting at the well, uh, presumably having satisfied himself, he sees a band of, of women arrive there to draw water from the well, and then a group of surly shepherds start hassling them, and maybe more than hassling them, maybe even abusing them. And that same compassion for vulnerable people and passion for justice rises up in Moses. And we're told that he got up and came to the women's rescue and watered their flock. I don't know if you've ever had um, somebody stand up for your kids when you weren't around, but I've had that happen. Uh, I've seen people advocate for my kids when I wasn't there to protect them and they won my undying devotion <laughs> because of their, their act. This is what happens in this instance. 
the father of the girls, and there were seven of these girls, is a man by the name of Jethro. In this text, he's called uh, Ruel, but Jethro is actually a notable figure in Midian. He is a substantial uh, shepherd. He holds a huge flock. He is a priest of Midian. He's a religious man. And so moved by the heroism of this young man that's helped his daughter, he takes the young man into his home. He takes this refugee into his home and makes him one of the family and eventually allows him to marry his daughter Zipporah. Moses spends the next 40 years with that family. The prince of Egypt, raised in splendor, spends the next 40 years of his life in relative squalor, learning how to shepherd learning how to protect a great flock, probably never imagining that he's being prepared to shepherd a vastly larger flock through a wilderness. How often do we not see how the difficult experiences of today are preparing us for the responsibilities and the opportunities of tomorrow. Chapter two comes to an end with these words. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. Pharaoh, the one chasing him, died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out nonetheless, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And we'll have to stop there for the moment. Let me just say in closing that I have titled today's message Basket Case because of the double entendre in that phrase which well describes, I think, the figure of Moses. Think about this with me. Carried from infancy by a basket of grace Moses was also something of a basket case himself, at least at this point in the story. He has been struggling his whole life to get clear on his identity and his real purpose and where he belongs. He's wrestled with how he should use these great passions that God has given him, this intense heart of compassion for vulnerable people and this intense sense of of passion for justice when things are being done wrong. And and he sometimes uses those passions and that compassion uh, constructively as in rescuing those girls at the well and sometimes he uses it destructively as in killing that Egyptian so rashly. He's just trying to work it out. And from the name he gives to his firstborn son, it's clear that Moses felt when he was in Midian like a stranger, like a foreigner in a strange land. He thinks he's a failure whom God has forgotten. And sometimes we feel this way, don't we? Sometimes we're very conscious of our failures of the tremendous gap between what we planned and what turned out. I was on the phone this morning at 7 a.m. With, a, with one of my young cousins in England and 
so deep is this feeling for him right now? If you think to pray for, for Lauder and his family, I invite you to do that. He's just conscious of his failures and of the big gap between his plans and what has happened. We find it hard in these moments to think that God is not done with us. That, that he might actually be using this current experience to prepare us to be of greater use for his purposes. We can't always see, friends, that in each and every moment we are being carried in a basket of his grace. And if you need to be reminded of that today, please consider this God's gracious reminder to you. And if you know somebody who's in a place of despair and hopelessness, I want to encourage you to encourage them to open their hearts to God, to put their trust in one who is a savior and to continue to yield themselves to him until the, the reality of that salvation becomes clear to them. I said at the start that there are several reasons for understanding Exodus that really matter. I've told you something of the story of Moses so far. In weeks ahead, we're going to learn a whole lot more. But please remember this. The ultimate point of Exodus isn't Moses. It's someone else. Exodus, for all of its other benefits, is a pointer to someone else. Think about this with me. Who else have you ever heard of who was born a Jew at a time when there was a cruel Gentile regent authority oppressing the Jewish people? What other child's birth that you've heard of was greeted by a king's edict that all the male children of a certain age be destroyed? What other figure was famously bedded down in an unusual crash, in one very common and organic. What other child have you heard of that spent time in Egypt as a little boy? Who else was not only blessed by an unusually courageous mother, but also trained up by a man who was not actually his biological father? What other very significant person was drawn up out of the water to play a unique role in history? Who else left an exalted position at the right hand of the king to descend and suffer with and for people and to set them free. Who else fulfilled the role of shepherd, prophet, priest, and king? Who besides Moses have you heard of who matches all of these characteristics? So much so that it's sort of 
Wild, don't you think? Wild. You almost wonder if the whole story of Exodus wasn't brilliantly designed in history by a higher power simply intending to point us irrefutably to this coming one. Say that one's name with me. Jesus. Jesus. And it is my hope and prayer that as we journey with the people of Exodus in these weeks to come, you and I may come to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more nearly day by day, and as long as our journey lasts. May God bless to us this reading and reflection upon his holy word, and to him be all the glory through Christ Jesus. Amen.